Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Unless Reed wants to do this first. No, I, I was totally waiting for you because I just, I don't know how this works if I go first. <laughs> <laughs> but should we mix it up? Should we just try that? Sure. Give it a shot. Why not? Welcome back to another episode of this week's podcast, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I'm Reed Gann. And I'm Colin Slade. And we are your hosts for Commission Ed. And I know I messed that up. It just didn't flow. <laughs> anyway, today we are super excited for you to be with us today. We are going to conclude our discussion on the Chief of Staff's Accelerate Change or Lose paper with his fourth and final point, which is empowered airmen can solve any problem. And from the beginning, this was the one I think I was most excited about because I feel like this is what our podcast is here to talk about. Yeah, I think that's whole motivation to start this podcast in the first place is that we felt like there was a gap in information and in the practical development and experiences of Air Force officers all focused around the idea of leadership and how we can do better for our airmen. So I think before General Brown ever put this paper out, you and I, Reed, were already on board with this. Yeah. 100%. And the topic of our discussion today is going to be on Air Force officers. And we propose that's where this conversation should be, not because we don't value the enlisted members, not because we don't, you know, recognize the critical role they play in all this, but because this is a leadership problem. There's a really great Jockoism, Colin. You put this up here in your notes. There are no bad teams, only bad leaders. That's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. And again, this isn't to say that the enlisted are not leaders either. They are absolutely leaders. But as we go through this conversation, you'll see that the the responsibility for what is going on with the Air Force right now, the situation that we're, that we're in, and ultimately the solution to those problems is leadership. That falls squarely on the shoulders of the commissioned officers as they carry out their responsibility toward the enlisted airmen. Totally agree. So let's think back to a lot of the problems that General Brown outlined in his paper. Rise of the great power competition, threat to our air dominance, our aging fleet infrastructure, internal impediments to effective communication, collaboration, change. And what we're going to talk about today, the lack of empowered airmen. All of these can be traced back to poor leadership. It's not the everyday enlisted airmen's fault that we're at risk of losing your dominance or the high-end fight. It's us, Colin, like you said. The brass-wearing Air Force officers are to blame. So we need to talk about what this word means, empowerment. We need to talk about how we can enable our enlisted force to win this fight. And that starts with us in the officer corps. Yeah, just an interesting anecdote about the leadership being the, uh, the source of every problem that we have in the Air Force. There was a recent article that was published by War on the Rocks about Squadron Officer School and the opportunity to be an instructor 
there at SOS or with somewhere within Air University at Maxwell. And the, the premise of the article is that there are lots of officers that want to be an instructor, which is true. But the main barrier to officers actually going through with applying for instructor duty through OIRSD and accepting the assignment is that Air University is located at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. And the article suggested a number of different things, but primarily that if you move SOS or other Air University instructor positions away from Montgomery, Alabama, then officers would be more likely to take that assignment. And this got shared into various different circles for Air Force officers. And man, they jumped on it like hyenas, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The engagement (laughs) was instant and really quite varied, I would argue, too. It wasn't just everyone piling on. Yep. It's a Montgomery, Alabama problem. I thought it was nuanced. I thought it was engaged with, you know, in a really intellectual way. And overwhelmingly, I thought it was a lot of smart people trying to get after this problem. and. The thing that I took away from this is, to me, even this issue, I think, is a leadership issue. Every time someone complains about SOS being lousy and someone in the room doesn't say something to the effect of what could make it better or why do you feel that way or is that your attitude or is that actual? You know what I mean? If leaders don't engage and we just all pile on and complain and moan about something, I think that's a failure of leadership to address that issue. It's my position that the reason SOS has a bad rap is because everyone goes there thinking it's going to suck. And so no matter how talented the instructor core is, no matter how well the program is built, if every single student doesn't want to be there, they have no chance. They have absolutely no chance at succeeding. So I contrast that with my experience as an OTS instructor. It's literally like 150 yards away. Right. <laughs> they are that close geographically. Okay. And my airmen are in jail basically compared to the SOS guys, right? <laughs> they can't leave campus. They don't have their cars. They're marching everywhere they go. They have to eat in the DFAC. I mean, the list goes on. Yet people are literally changing their lives, doing everything they can in order to get there. They're highly motivated. And yes, there are some of those more salty you know, maybe former senior NCOs who are, okay, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, roll their eyes. But overwhelmingly, it's a wonderful, positive training experience. Why is that? It's because they want to be there. It's the same geographic place and my airmen are in jail and they have a great experience because they want to be there. Uh, it's not I, just I, that your airmen have a great experience. The instructors have a great experience. Absolutely. And arguably, the hours and the level of effort that oh my gosh, that it's OTS <laughs> instructors have to go through is far worse than anything experienced by SOS or ACSE or anything else within Air University. And yet, I will leave with that being one of the more important and transformative assignments I've ever had. We can do this, but it's us. It's us, Colin. There it is again, right? We decide that SOS is going to suck. Therefore, it does. And therefore, we continue to perpetuate. So I've committed to not leaving a room or a conversation where people are bagging on SOS. I'm just not going to leave that problem there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about it. But that's an example of an anecdote that happened this week about how almost everything can be tied back to a failure of leadership. 
Yeah, so Jenner Brown leads this discussion around empowering airmen by stating that the Air Force must re-examine what attributes the service requires to fight and win a high-end fight against a peer competitor. And, you know, he offers a few different suggestions that we're going to get into here, but all that General Brown is saying and all that we are going to say here today is that we need better leadership across all Air Force officers. Yeah. So why don't we start there? Let's re-examine what an Air Force officer needs in order to accomplish this. You know, just like in our uh, previous episode where we talked about aging equipment, right, and not focusing on the asset. We have to shift our thinking away from those platforms towards the capability. And General Brown gives us some examples. Successful operations and combat support in a contested environment demand maximum delegation, trust, and empowerment of airmen before conflict starts. We must empower airmen at all levels, delegating to the lowest capable and competent level possible. You know, we actually got into this a little bit uh, in last week's episode when I made my suggestion around commission officers being less specialized than they are right now. And I think that's being reinforced here by General Brown. I think that if we are able to decrease the specialization, not the capability, mind you, but the technical and tactical specialization of our Air Force officers and have them focus more on the ability to delegate trust and empower their airmen, then that's how we're going to win. Because I think that the more that you become a subject matter expert in your particular area, whatever that may be, flying, intelligence, support, acquisitions, it doesn't matter what the area is. When you have that level of expertise, it becomes far more difficult for you to delegate and empower others to act of their own accord. And so this brings me back to what we were saying about General McChrystal's team of teams and his analogy of the leader being a coach. We discussed this a little bit last week, and I think it's worth bringing up here again. But this time I want to take a look at some of the examples from sports history, right? So we know that some of the worst coaches in professional sports were those subject matter experts. They were the best players in their game and then tried their hand at coaching and failed miserably. Some examples come to mind. Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas, Wayne Gretzky. But on the other hand, there are some less gifted players who happen to make far better coaches. For example, Vince Lombardi never played football professionally. Same thing for Joe McCarthy in baseball. Bill Belichick, more recently, never played in the NFL and yet has become one of the most well-known, most successful coaches in that sport. And you know, I think that there are many reasons for this particular dichotomy of greatest players making terrible coaches versus more mediocre players being able to really succeed as coaches. But I think that one of the primary reasons for this is that those who are less gifted at their sport don't specialize at a higher level, either because they never get the opportunity or they weren't good enough or because they chose to go a different route. Now, please don't understand me here. I'm not suggesting that the Air Force should recruit and retain mediocre officers. That's not what I'm going for at all. But what I'm saying is that officers need to have a deep knowledge and passion for the game. Absolutely. They need to care deeply about air power and how to employ it effectively. But in order to truly be a great leader and to empower their airmen, officers need to recognize 
their limitations and then empower others to play that game in their stead, whatever that may mean. Yeah. So this has been giving me a whole lot to think about. So I was the one in last week's episode who said, I don't want baseball players coaching basketball teams. And I will still hold to that, right? I, I still think there's some level of tactical experience and firsthand knowledge that should go along with leading a team. I'll still hold to that to some degree. But, you know, as I thought about this, and I really love your examples here, one of the things I've found is people like you mentioned that are performing at a high level in a specific area, they tend to expect that others can perform at the same level as they can and are less patient when others are unable to meet their internal expectations. Colin, to me, that sounds like the definition of a toxic leader. Someone who loses their mind when the slideshow is not exactly perfect because they can do it perfect. So why can't this bonehead over here figure it out? You know, that type of thing. And, and so I definitely see how we may be promoting and putting people in leadership with the wrong set of skills. And this comes back to that issue we talked about. It, are we tacticians or are we leaders? It all circles back to that core idea for me. And I really like this example and it's good for us to think about. I don't have a good answer to this. You know, again, after going to the CAOC in 2014 and watching us be ordered by the commander in chief to go into Syria and drop bombs, which at the time Syria was one of, if not the hardest places to fly an airplane because of the defensive missile order of battle and the integrated air defense system. I desperately wanted a pilot making a lot of those decisions and, and I'll still hold to that. And so this is an area that I think we really need to explore. And so I, I think it's good that we're bringing it up and we want to hear others' inputs as well. You know, where do you think this line is? Yeah. And let's be fair here, Reed. Being a tactician and a leader are not mutually exclusive. You can be both. It is possible. It's where the emphasis is placed, though. That's where we need to have this discussion is, as an Air Force officer, where do you draw the line of responsibility? Yep. Is, At what point in your career? How do we reward that? Yeah, all those things. And we know that there are officers who have figured this out. There are even pilots who have figured this out. Thank goodness, right? That's how we've gotten to the place where we are now. But also how we got to the place where we are now is that we have had toxic leaders that there are those who didn't figure this out and who are still serving who haven't figured this out, who are far more focused on the tactical and the technical side of their craft and less concerned or not concerned at all about being a leader, about being responsible for their airmen. It actually makes me think of, of Simon Sinek. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read his new book, Infinite Game. Highly recommend it. But in there, he says, leaders are not responsible for the results. Leaders are responsible for the people who are responsible for the results. And I think that's a direction that our officers need to go is being less concerned about doing the thing themselves. They're not always going to be a player uh, on the field. And there is a time and a place where they need to be able and comfortable with coming off of the field, standing on the sideline and empowering other people to go and play the game on their behalf. Yeah. And that is hard. And 
I will offer this as a parent. I have learned how inadequate I am in this regard, right? If you have any question about how hard it is for you to let others do something, I want you to bring in someone maybe 10 years old or so and have them make dinner with you and say something simple. Hey, can you put the tomatoes in the sauce we're making? And they just look at you with their big eyes and you realize that there's about 70 steps between there and where you're trying to get to that you haven't described. And, you know, or go work on your car with your 13 year old son and say, hand me the half inch drive socket. And you realize the amount of training that you haven't provided them to get them where they know exactly what a half inch drive socket looks like. And I am confronted with this on the daily, my inadequacies to prepare my folks to execute the vision that I have for them. And I think what we are is afraid to say, oop, that's on me. This is tough. The, the only counterpoint I would offer, and I think it's something we have to think about as well, to, count, to Simon Sinek's point, officers are responsible for how things go legally, right? If something's going bad, they go, okay, who's got the rank? That guy or gal, right? You're in charge. You're responsible, even if they have no idea what's going on, right? People get fired for the things that people under them do that they may have never met, seen to, spoken of, right? But that's how it goes. It's a good point. Because you carry the commission, you are ultimately responsible for the success or failure of the mission. But the discussion here is who needs to be responsible on the daily, as you put it, for the, the actual execution of the mission. Yes. No, totally agree. And believe me, I have been kicked out of my chair in my mission of editing slides before a brief by an 06 who sat down to edit my slides. That has happened. Wing commander equivalent. Hey, let me sit down and take care of this. Roger that, sir. Micromanager, right? That has happened. And we need to address it. We can't keep doing this. So Colin, where do we start? Where do we start, you know, adjusting this culture? Yeah, you're right. Because it's not enough for us to just you know, say, hey, that's a big problem. And, it, and step back and admire it. That's the whole point of us having these conversations around Jenner Brown's paper is that he's outlined the problem. He's casting a vision of what the future may be. He's calling out that there are these particular issues that need to be addressed. And we as an Air Force officers need to catch that vision and run with it. So let's take a closer look. What are some of these internal impediments and what can we do about it? I think that we need to take a look at the entire career of an Air Force officer from start to finish and point out the in internal impediments to these changes and institutionalizing this idea of being a leader more than a tactician, leading as a coach as, a, as opposed to a player on the field. I think that needs to be addressed at every stage of the Air Force officer's career, starting with recruiting. In my time in Air Force ROTC, I was the recruiting officer. I was responsible for going out and finding people who were qualified to serve as Air Force officers and then interest them in serving. They may not even know that the thing exists, that it's an opportunity for them. And so it was my responsibility to show them the possibility. And by and large, that focus on the quote unquote qualified meant those who are in STEM career fields and the highest performers within those areas. But I think that is somewhat misplaced. 
I think that there is something to be said for finding those who are interested and working with them to get them qualified. No, don't qualify those who are not actually worthy or capable of serving as an officer, but you know, being willing to spend some time with those who have soft skills and helping those potential future officers to meet the qualifications for joining the service. So something I'm wondering here is if this is an efficiency, a resources problem. And the reason I ask is, and I'll use this as an example, at OTS, when I was going through the program, all you had to do is pass one PFA up to and including the last one in the last week of training. And they did a bunch of historical analysis, a lot of data crunching, and they found that if you didn't pass the first PFA, the likelihood of you passing the final PFA was so small, we're talking single digits here, that they decided if you failed the first PFA, that was it. Because it just wasn't worth keeping you in training for the entirety of the program just for you to go and fail the final PFA and never commissioned in the first place. So I'm wondering, and if we use that as a way to examine this, qualify the interested, right? Like these people are obviously interested. Train them up. At OTS in eight to 12 weeks, I don't know that there's time for that. Do you think it's a resource constraint issue, even in ROTC where we've got three, four years to work with these folks, that they instead interest the qualified instead of the other way around? Do you think it's an efficiency resources question? Oh, sure. I think that's absolutely a part of it. I don't know that's the entire issue, but I think it's something worth paying attention to that there's just not time enough people, enough resources, enough of the stuff that we need in order to help those who are not qualified when they walk in the door or shortly thereafter to get them to where they need to be. But as you were talking, I was also thinking, I don't know the numbers, but I wonder, going back to those toxic leaders that often are found in the Air Force, how many of them came from those STEM career fields and were the highest performers? In everything that they did, they had the Midas touch. You know, everything turned to gold because they were just so gifted. And because they were so gifted, we recruited them. We threw money at them, gave them scholarships, gave them all the best opportunities, starting out from recruiting all the way through their career. And that led them to become the toxic leader that they are just because nobody else around them had the Midas touch like they did. Yeah, I don't know that we even have the data to do that analysis, but I I see your point, right? If you've never failed, if everything's always worked, the first time things get really hard as a leader, yeah, it's an interesting point and I don't have an answer to that, but yeah, interesting thing to, to think about for sure. But going back to your point again around the way things happen at OTS, the resource constrained, the time constrained environment, that goes to the next stage of the Air Force officer's career, which is the accession sources. It boggles my mind that we have three different commissioning sources producing officers, this product that we all want, but doing it in drastically different ways. Why is it that we have the Academy? Why do we have Air Force ROTC? Why do we have OTS? Why do we have three different ways of doing the same thing? And yeah, I know it catches people at different points in their life, disparate experiences, and all those things are really important. And all those things benefit the Air Force later on once those people commission and are serving. But it seems unnecessary to me. It seems uh, wasteful to me to have three different ways of doing this. 
And I'm actually on the other side of this. And we've had this conversation. I actually think we need the Air Force Academy and its ability to recruit, you know, the Ivy League, the elite, the top of the top performers as they're entering their college years. I think we need the Air Force OTS, which is going to recruit those folks who went to college a lot later or, you know, wanted to get some life experience. And I think we need the the diversity that comes from the Air Force ROTC program, which can recruit from campuses all across the country. So I'm with you in that I want to ask the question, are we doing this right? But I actually think we need all three. I think they're recruiting different people. And for me, the diversity is worth it. I'm okay with inefficiency for higher quality. That's the way I see this problem. I'm not saying that it's inefficient. I'm saying that we are getting drastically different results from the different commissioning sources. You have to recognize that an officer coming out of OTS is not the same thing that comes out of the Academy or, or Air Force ROTC. That they're is not, true. They're not the same thing. And I'm totally okay with that. Okay. I think, I think, it, it, different, yeah, I think different is good. And I think, yes, while a second lieutenant looks the same, no matter what, you know, if you stand back from 10 feet, one from ROTC, one from OTS, and one from the academy, you're like, oh, yeah, look, they're all second lieutenants. But I think that diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of background, perspective, I think that is worth it. I'm willing to examine, you know, like how much are we spending on the Air Force Academy? Versus how much are we spending on an OTS student? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, I'm, I think astronomical yeah. difference. Yeah. You and I have talked about this before. I think all of this should happen physically at the Air Force Academy. I think that should become the spiritual home of the Air Force. I think there's a lot to discuss here, but I'm going to offer that as my counterpoint. And my counter to your counterpoint is if the goal here is to institutionalize some of the things that General Brown is talking about, delegation, trust, empowerment of airmen. If we want one end result in that particular arena, then we, at the very least, need to make sure that the three different commissioning sources are all doing that the same way, and they're not. Yeah, and there is effort to get them there. I know for a fact that at the Home Center, right, which owns both ROTC and OTS, there's significant effort going into aligning those programs as best they can when it comes to the instruction, when it comes to the field training experience, you know, a lot of effort going in that direction. So, But that's because ROTC and OTS fall under the same one star. So it makes things far more easy to align the way that they do things. Whereas the academy is not just that they have their own three star, but that three star is completely outside of all other Air Force organizations. And that boggles my mind. Yep. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to discuss in this area. And, and I think it's an interesting area. You know, how do we assess people? How are they organized? Where are these organizations aligned to? What does that say? How many leaders are there between them and the chief of staff? All these things I think are really good for discussion. Just I'm a big fan of the breadth and diversity that comes out of the current system. So I'm a tread lightly kind of guy, but we've known that. We've known that. I know that about myself. I think the next area that we want to talk about is in development. And Colin, you had originally built this as, you know, we aren't developed very much as leaders. And we're talking about how feedback doesn't happen very often, how professional military education doesn't happen very often. Career broadening is restricted. 
And what were your thoughts on this? Because I came at it from a little bit different perspective, but I think we really like where we got to in the end. Yeah, I mean, the original idea is that if you go back to what we've been saying about the specialization of officers, and if they're going to be effective as leaders, they need to come out of their specialty, out of their career field more frequently. And that needs to take place first within the career field and in that they need to get feedback from higher levels on a more regular basis. I don't know what your experience has been, but mine has been that I don't get that formal feedback or even informal feedback as often as I think that I needed in order to continue to develop my ability as an officer, as a leader, as opposed to my technical proficiency in the job that I was doing at the time. And the the same can be said for professional military education or PME. It's that it only happens in very short bursts at very specific points along the course of your career. When you become a new captain, you go to SOS for six weeks or so. And that's a very short amount of time. And then later when you become a major, you have the opportunity to potentially go in residence to ACSE. Yes, that is a year long, but one year out of a 20-year career is very short. It's a short burst. And my point is that when you do something intermittently, you don't become very good at it. If you want to really succeed at a particular thing, and in this context, that of being a leader, a less specialized tactician who is able to lead and empower airmen, you need to engage with that on a far more regular basis than just these short bursts of PME or being able to go and do a career broadening assignment, such as being an instructor at OTS or ROTC or something like that. Yeah. And it's funny because this reminded me of a conversation I had with a now Brigadier General who at the time was in 06, I was kind of lamenting about these exact things. We don't get enough feedback. We don't get enough education. You know, training and education is not valued. And this person was a graduate of the weapons school and a former weapons school instructor. Immediately contradicted me. So what are you talking about? We have feedback every time we have a debrief. Every time you go out and fly, you have a debrief. Every time we have an exercise, we have a debrief, we have a hot wash and all. And he pointed out numerous occasions where feedback happened. And then he said, and training, what do you mean, you know, being an instructor isn't valued? He's like, I am who I am today. And he had, he was a brigadier general select at the point because of the opportunity I had to go to this specialized training and be an instructor. And what I then pointed out is like, sir, those are all tactical things. You're debriefing your tactical execution. You're getting rewarded for going to an education and training program to be a tactician. You were an instructor in a technical sense. Those things are rewarded. I'm in a, quote, career broadening tour right now. I'm an intern at a three-letter agency, and that's going to benefit me. But it's because I'm getting tactical, technical experience. And I think that's something we do really well as an Air Force. I think we do feedback well tactically as an Air Force. I think we do education and training from a tactical perspective. I think we do career broadening well from a tactical perspective. What I don't think we do well is those things as the leader. And this gets back to my point. I think it's leader versus technician. That is something we really need to address. And just to reemphasize that point and transition into the next stage of how officers are promoted, that 06 was selected for Brigadier General because he was a tactician. And an excellent one. Yeah. 
Now, I struggle with this because he was also a really good organizational leader, you know, and we've said this before. We don't want to make these mutually exclusive. If you are an excellent tactician, you cannot be a good leader. We're, we're not saying that. What we're saying is we need to promote what we value and what we value needs to be more aligned with our ultimate objective, which is developing people who can lead airmen. But you said that he said he became who he was today because he went through this tactical level school. Yes. And I wonder how many of our general officers, 07 through 010, are a result of that same mentality. Oh, just look at their shoulders and see how many of them have the weapon school patch on. Lots of them. So the point is here, Reed, that I think that we as an institution not only develop but promote tacticians where we need to put far more emphasis on the leadership side of being an officer. Yeah. And we're on the same page on that one for sure. And this kind of leads us into our next section, right? How do we promote people? We've already talked about this. It's on your records, right? And the creation of the records therefore becomes very important. So let's talk about promotions. Let's talk about awards and evaluations right now are written by the officer who is the subject of the award or decoration or evaluation. Translation, when it's time for my supervisor to sign a document that says, this is how well Major Gann has performed, I wrote that document. And that's an almost universal experience. This document is written in a language that no one outside of us can understand. It's wholly indecipherable. Like it might as well be like an NSA code. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and sometimes it's about things that you didn't necessarily do. You were just there for. And getting back to our last week's episode, why are these things not written by the supervisors and actual leaders? The amount of time, the amount of admin time required to jump through the hoops and do the hokey pokey to make this thing work and get through the myriad of AFIs and rules and instructions that exist to get this thing through is astronomical. They simply do not have time. If you supervise more than maybe five officers, I totally see how there's no way that you could write their performance reports. I totally see it. There's just no way you have the physical capability, the computer connection, the the straight up time. So you know, it's interesting how some of these points that General Brown's pointed out already are impacting others. You know, if we can solve one of these things, we can solve maybe three or four others. Uh, they're all interconnected. Yeah. We also want to talk here about stratifications and how those go into these different awards and evaluations. You know, read, there's actually a really fantastic article out there written by a retired colonel. His name is Jason Lamb. But at the time that he wrote it, he was noticing a, a lot of these internal impediments. You know, the way that the awards and evaluation system w- was, was broken. And he chose stratifications in particular as one of his talking points. Highly recommend that everybody go uh, check this, this article out. But when he wrote it, this was such a sensitive topic that he actually wrote it with a pseudonym of Ned Stark because he didn't want to draw unnecessary attention to himself, but he wanted to get the discussion going about how to fix this, especially around stratifications and and how they're all messed up. Yeah. And we'll provide a link in the show notes to this article. Fantastic article. And just one in the series, Colin, the pseudonym Ned Stark was writing a bunch of things about officer performance reports, about how we promote what we value. And this got the attention of the chief of staff. I mean, this was 
huge. When this came out, this was massive. I mean, these articles made ripples. I remember we had a three-star general give an officer professional development session about the Ned Stark articles at my installation because it was causing that much of a stir. I mean, this made waves throughout the Air Force. Which we are still feeling today. 100%. Just because I'm vain and I'm going to say it, Colonel Jason Lamb was an intel officer. So (laughs) anyway, so let's talk a little bit about strats and how some ways that they're broken. So let's talk about speeding. Colin, you want to break down what speeding is? Yeah, so speeding refers to the commander's ability to only have one number one officer at any given point in time, right? Yeah, and finding creative ways to have more than one number one. Right. I mean, so if you supervise 10 officers, only one of them can be in the the top 10%, right? Only one of them can be your number one. And yet the evaluations would reflect that there were multiple different number ones in that there was the number one of captains, the number one of lieutenants, or in the top 10% of officers seen in a 30-year career, something like that. And in all these different ways, commanders were trying to speed their officers, trying to give them the, the boost of a number one strat when really those that they were pushing were not actually the number one officer that the commander supervised. Yeah, let's use OTS, for example. This is a really good way of describing this. So the OTS squadrons of when we were talking about just permanent party, you have a commander, you have a DO, and then you've got 20 captains-ish or so. All right, all of the captains are doing the same thing, by and large, right? They're all flight commanders at OTS. You can only have one number one captain. And then what will happen is they'll have number one flight commander. And then they'll have a number one instructor. You're like, hang on a second. Aren't all of those the same thing? You know, they're literally the same people doing the same thing. Shouldn't they all be exactly the same person? And and so that's a really good example of speeding when, wait a minute, I've got the number one captain, but that captain is also a flight commander and that captain is also an instructor but you have a different number one flight commander and a different number one instructor. Wait a minute. This doesn't add up, right? So that's kind of the definition of speeding. Colonel Lamb in his article also points out a number of other issues, the pool sizes, right? So Colin, in some squadrons, you have a lot of officers. So the pool is very large. How do you compare the number one person in that pool to the number one person in a much smaller pool? So in a squadron of... 50 people and 10 officers, you're going to have a a number one. If this squadron over here has 40 officers, is the number two of 40 better than the number one of 10? Right? Like, how do you compare between pools? How do you compare? So how people evaluate who, quote, number one is highly subjective. Timing is another issue. So most organizations will have two strat discussions a year right? You, you know, every six months or so. And, but what if those are offset? What if someone has theirs in the summer and the winter and someone else has theirs in the spring and the fall and who PCS in at what time? And I mean, all this stuff just really muddies the water on who quote is the number one. Yeah. And that timing around 
when strats are settled at the organizational level, but there's also the timing of the individual officer who's coming up for a promotion and needs to have the higher strat in order to get them over the hump of being selected into the next grade. Exactly. And he goes on and on. Please read his article. It's very thorough, very thought-provoking, and definitely you know a must-read. And I, I do want to point out, there are some rules about all this stuff, right? So AF536-2406 about officer and enlisted evaluations, it goes into some of these things. You're not technically allowed to speed. There are ways I've heard of how promotion boards actually examine and look at records for speeding, and they will actually hold senior leaders accountable. But admittedly, stratifications are troublesome. Yet, I'll also offer, if there's anybody out there who has a perfect personnel evaluation system that you can apply to half a million people instantly, I'm listening. I don't know anyone who's excited about their personnel evaluation system. These are really hard problems. But we've got to talk about this in particular because of how important it is and how it creates the leaders that we have. So we've got to find a way to get better. Well, yeah. And just to bring this back full circle to who is getting promoted and and wanting to institutionalize leaders who are focused on empowering airmen, many of those number one strats are given to those who are tactically and technically proficient, as opposed to demonstrating their ability to lead airmen. Because it's easier to evaluate that. Hey, wow, you are the best pilot in this squadron. Objectively, everyone agrees. Therefore, you get the number one strat. The guy or gal might be a horrible person to get along with. You know, and, and I won't say that I won't contribute, but boy, it's tough. This is hard. And they're going to take that number one strat. They're going to go to the fighter weapons school, become a fighter weapons instructor. They're going to continue to ride that wave of tactical proficiency in stratification through their promotion, through the ranks, up to general officer, and the whole thing just perpetuates itself. So General Brown reminds us that us officers, we must create and sustain an environment in which all airmen can reach their full potential. Airmen who do not or cannot reflect these and the related attributes we value fall short of being future Air Force leaders we require. Colin, he calls us out. He's saying that everything that we just described is not sufficient, is not what we need anymore. We need to change that. Or leave. That's what I read as well. You fall short of being the Air Force leaders we require. It's calling us out. Yeah. Here's the honest truth here, Reed. Our officers deserve better than this. Our airmen do as well. Yeah, we all deserve better than this. And then, and ultimately, the American people deserve better than this. They deserve leaders, not tacticians, at least within the officer corps. We have tacticians and we want tacticians and technical experts in the enlisted corps. And we have them. They are incredible. But if we don't have the leadership married up with that technical expertise, we are not going to win. So if we're going to win, if we're going to solve this lack of leadership, which is the, the source of all of these problems that General Brown has identified. Lack of leadership is the reason that there is a threat to our air dominance and a new rise in great power competition. Lack of leadership is the reason we struggle to collaborate effectively. Lack of leadership is the reason we struggle to empower our airmen. But it's also that empowerment that is going to solve all of these problems. 
leadership is the antidote to everything that ails us in the Air Force today. Yes, that's circular. I know that. But the honest truth here, Reed, is that the solutions to our problems are not going to come from outside of the Air Force. We did this to ourselves, and so we need to solve it too. Not even the other services are going to be able to solve this for us. I mean, they're focused on their own problems, right? And so the way that we are going to get after everything that General Brown has identified within Accelerate Change or Lose is leadership. We need to take ownership of this as officers in the Air Force and do our part to empower our enlisted airmen, empower each other, empower our leaders to include General Brown and Chief Bass to get after these problems and make the changes that we need to succeed and win. Yes, totally agree. And so in the coming months, we're going to actually put out some more thought pieces here on the podcast about what does right look like? What should officer accession and training look like? What should recruiting look like? We're going to talk about that. You know, we spent the last month going over this paper in detail, and we're very grateful for General Brown's vision and for communicating it so clearly and pushing it out to his service. But these are hard questions that we can't just admire. And I'm looking forward to engaging with you, our audience. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas are. Because especially as airmen wearing the uniform, this is us. We do this. We made this problem. We can unmake this problem. That's one of the most amazing things about being an airman is this is our service and we have the tools. We can make this happen. And if we follow the vision of our chief of staff to empower airmen at all levels, we can solve this problem. Absolutely. And to conclude this discussion, just the same way that General Brown concludes his paper, he says, we have done this before and we can do it again. Today's U.S. Air Force and its assumed dominance was shaped by highly innovative and courageous airmen throughout our storied history. This is not a new thing. We've been here before, and so we know that we can do it again. But everybody who's listening to this podcast, everybody else who is currently serving as an officer and or those who want to become one, need to catch this vision, need to internalize it, make it your own, and carry that forward as we try to make our Air Force better and prepared for the fight that we anticipate is going to come next. Awesome. Anything else before we wrap up this week's episode, Colin? Last thing is the quote from Willie O'Duhay, victory smiles upon those who anticipate the change in the character of war, not upon those who wait to adapt themselves after the changes occur. Love it. And that concludes this week's episode of Commission Ed. 